massacre at the school Uvalde in Texas. Uh, it's been a week today uh, since that happened. And, you know, mourners are uh, out today. I think the first funeral was held today. And there's a lot of questions around what happened on that day, what, how many minutes, maybe 90 minutes it took for um, the police to officially respond to the shooter. And, uh, you know, that is a, a tremendously long amount of time and a real issue f- for everyone involved. And I want to welcome Brandon Wolf to the show. Brandon is a former guest on the show. Brandon was also a survivor of the Pulse nightclub, and he's also an activist in the LGBTQ community since, he's, since that sh- shooting took place. And, you know, Brandon, uh, how are you? Welcome to the show. Thank you. Uh, I'm good. How are you doing? I'm good, thank you. You haven't ever met Eric, so it's your first chance to say hi to Eric, but there you go. Not hi. Nice to meet you, Eric. <laughs> you, you know, as we were discussing last week, all the different uh, scenarios around why it would be, you know, what could, what could possibly delay the police for responding to a shooting like this with kids in a classroom behind a door, only a door and windows on the other side, so many points of access. What would take 90 minutes to gain access to that? And I was reminded by what was in even more excruciating way, although just equally as excruciating, the things that happened at the Pulse nightclub. Uh, you were there and you had to wait an even longer period of time. Can you describe uh, the events of that night as to why there was so much of a delay and what that delay was all about? Sure. I think the first thing to say out loud, uh, and I think people need to be frank about this, is that what happened in Uvalde was a completely catastrophic failure of law enforcement agencies to do their job. It was ineptitude, it was cowardice, and as a result, children lost their lives. Mm -hmm. And I also need to say that, you know, as you mentioned, folks in Orlando know what that feels like. Uh, We know a sliver of that pain because on June 12th of 2016, we waited three hours for police to breach the building at Pulse nightclub, three hours where there were people being held hostage in two bathrooms in the back of the building. And in a a follow-up internal investigation, the Orlando Police Department acknowledged that 13 people died in those bathrooms while they were waiting three hours outside to enter the building. Now, they have made rationalizations or excuses around why it took them three hours to get in the building. They said at the time that the man who was perpetrating the crime had said he had explosive devices, that he'd set them up around the building, and that he was wearing an explosive vest. That turned out to not be true at all. There were no explosive devices on his person in the building or in his car, as he claimed. And really, for me, some of the things that came out in the wake of that are quite shocking. While folks were waiting three hours, including myself, to learn the fates of our friends, uh, the shooter was on Google teaching himself how to unjam his firearm uh, so that he could continue to fire on people in the club and the police officers trying to breach the building. And again, I think of those 13 people who bled to death on the floor of the bathroom, some of them in the arms of their friends and family members who've gone on to live through hell for the last six years. So um, again, I think it's really important that we call it what it is, ineptitude and cowardice. And I think it raises a really important question, two important questions that I've been asking today. The first one is why? Why, if this is such a common occurrence in this country, decade after decade, do we not have basic procedures that are followed by law enforcement agencies across the board? Why are we seeing the same thing six years later after Pulse happening in a school in Uvalde? Why did we see the same thing happen in Parkland when an armed school resource officer didn't go into the building resulting in the deaths of multiple children? Why are we still seeing these catastrophic failures of law enforcement And the second question, and maybe the most important one, is why are we still doubling down on this idea 
that we need to focus on addressing gun violence once the shooter is already in the building. If we have told ourselves that the only way to address this problem is to continue to invest in more police officers at more checkpoints and more armed people inside of school buildings or churches or nightclubs or grocery stores, then we have already resigned ourselves to the fact that gun violence is unavoidable and inevitable in this country, a fact that is simply not true. Our system is not working. None of the things that we've done to prevent gun violence in this country have worked to the degree that they need to. That is true. But what is not true is that gun violence is inevitable. And I just don't see a solution where all we do is continue to invest in the response instead of uprooting it in the first place. You're absolutely right. I mean, there's just absolutely no excuse for the system not to have learned all the lessons from these shootings. And, you know, you describe 13 people, 13 lives that could have been saved at Pulse nightclub. You describe people being locked in bathrooms, in two bathrooms, if I'm not mistaken, while you were waiting outside. So some people, like in Uvalde, there was Uvalde, some of the kids got away, got escaped through windows that were broken open. But in these, in this one particular classroom, where the shooter was, no one came to rescue them at all for 90 minutes. Very, very similar scenario. When you think about, just to ask you a little bit more details about what happened in Pulse, you were there at the start of the shooting, and then you were part of the group that was evacuated, right? And then we made it out of a door. So I was washing my hands at a bathroom sink when the shooting started. Uh, The shooter made his way from inside the front door. He went off to his right through the dance floor. I was off to the left in a separate bar. By the grace of God, I grabbed arms with a bunch of people that I'd never met before and made a sprint for an exit. That was incredibly lucky because that was one of the bathrooms that was ultimately you know, the last place that many people took their final breaths. We made it outside as police were arriving. Police started to move people down the street. They were carrying assault weapons and wearing body armor, riot gear. They were trying to evacuate the perimeter of the building. And it seemed at that moment that there would be this swift response that police and fire department would go inside, would begin to rescue people, would eliminate the shooter and save the people that were trapped in the bathroom. Unfortunately, that turned out not to be true. And it was three hours later before they used a device to blow open a hole in the side wall of the building and let themselves in that way. Wow. Why that delay? Did we ever find out what the reason behind the delay was? Was it just the same kind of thing, just sort of disagreements or procedures? Well, they have said, again, that, you know, that they feared there were explosive devices. But that and that was like- the reason that they didn't go in. But but again, there are still lingering questions for me. Um, questions that I have is the fire department apparently had put in new uh, processes before that. They had gotten new gear, an attempt to be ready to respond to a mass casualty situation. But they left that gear at the fire department and came totally underprepared for what they were about to find. Um, And so there's a lot of questions for me, again, that came out of this report. And the biggest question is, how are we six years later? And we're talking about a very similar situation in which 19 children are dead and we haven't learned any lessons. Because it sounds like the same thing. I mean, they said uh, bombs might have been inside. These guys said he may have barricaded himself. He hadn't really barricaded himself. None of the kids had said that he barricaded himself. The door was just closed. You know, there's no reason to suspect that there was any way for them not to get in. There was a second entrance in, into the classroom from the back. There's a glass windows on the other side that could have maybe come in from the top. There are so many ways to access the classroom that it seems stunning that they would wait behind a door and the idea that he had maybe barricaded himself when he clearly hadn't barricaded himself we'd have heard about it by now and it sounds so similar to this idea that there was bombs or some sort of explosive devices in the pulse nightclub but there weren't any so 
you know, there's something really clearly broken in our police response and to these shootings. And as you point out, it's not new. It's also happened in Parkland. Um, so it's, you know, we're seeing three major incidents, and I'm sure there's many more, where you've just got responses to these major shootings that are not living up to our expectations by any stretch of the imagination. In fact, they seem to be making things much worse. Eric, do you have any yeah. thoughts on this? Just to take a form of devil's advocate here, let's say that the we're going to abandon the notion of reducing the number of small arms in the civilian population. The statistics for which if you have fewer guns, fewer people get shot with them, it's really not up for debate, um, not a serious one anyhow. But let's say we abandon all that and say there's going to be guns anywhere and there's occasionally going to be mass casualty, mass murder events. Okay. So if we want to have all the freedom, you can't have rights without responsibilities, then surely our law enforcement can agree that we need a whole lot of investment. And for all these millions of gun owners are, should be chucking a couple nickels for this to make sure that the police departments have the special weapons and tactics training that they need, including, you know, some technologies that are coming to mind. Um, are like drones and other forms of uh, mobile surveillance so that, you know, they can get, there's LIDAR type radar uh, vision and other audio surveillance. There's lots of technologies to know what's going on in a space, right? You know, everyone's Social got media. a phone on them. Yeah, phones. Social media. Yeah. You've got, um, uh, what do they call them? The sharks. I forget the uh, stingrays. That's it. That can gather up very targeted information on everyone's phone in an area and then surveil that. There are solutions for this if we've decided that just we're going to spread infantry equipment all over the United States. If that's the case, then people should be trained up on how to face this down. And but they you know, are. I mean, they had, these guys had training nine weeks ago where they were told the difference between barricading yeah. and, and an active shooter, and they still made the wrong decisions. And they've, they've got a full police force just designed to manage the schools over there. Six member police force. This is what they do for work. And yet and the, they didn't the, do any of it. They didn't do it. They didn't well, do any of it. And I'll tell you, I'm, huh. I'm struggling a little bit with the investment in technology because, mm. again, police forces in this country have an inordinate amount of money. They have incredible investment already. In fact, right. we saw that uh, in the summer of 2020 during the Black Lives Matter protests, Orlando rolled out military style equipment that nobody even really knew they had with like sound cannons and things like that to try to put down protests. And yet we get into a mass casualty situation where we need them to be highly trained and effective to save lives and they're unable to do that. So I don't know that I'm buying into this idea that, that giving the police more technology, that reinvesting in some of these same old tactics is going to answer our issues if they can't even handle the very basics of what they're supposed to be doing, which is making fundamental decisions about when to go in and save children's lives. Yeah, in fact, I think Valdi and Pulse Nightclub both show that police aren't really equipped to deal with this. They don't deal with it well. And maybe they're not the right approach. Maybe the only approach we have is the gun approach. And we have to ban these AR-15s. We have to take sensible legislation into account and stop the massacres through what makes sense, which is to ban certain weapons from being sold in the United States. It's just it's the only way that makes sense. 
listen, I, again, I come back to this idea that if all we ever do is reinvest and double down our investment in responding to crises, then we're not having an honest conversation with ourselves about how we stop these crises from happening in the first place. I don't just want to shut kids into a prison-like school with the assumption that someone's always going to try to barge through the front door with an AR-15 and unload hundreds of rounds of ammunition into mm-hmm. those children. I want to address the root cause. I want to figure out why we have such a crisis in this country. And by the way, it is only happening in this country. We are the only industrialized nation on the face of the planet that has this kind of an issue with gun violence. And we've been told time and time again that all we have to do is just put more guns on the street, that if there were just one more good guy with a gun, forget that there were 19 standing in a hallway in a school in Uvalde, if there were just a 20th, if there were just one more person with their hands on a gun, then maybe all of this could have been averted. Well, guess what? That experiment that we've been trying on our children is not working. We have more guns per capita than any other country on the planet. It's not even close. And no other country has this issue with gun violence. So we have to have an honest conversation about not just how do we respond to crises like this, but how do we stop them from happening in the first mm-hmm. place? And it sounds like in Uvalde and Pulse, just repeat, the lives that cost lives. The delay cost lives, many lives. So in Uvalde, the parents were being held back from going to save their own children. Some of them were armed, but the police were actually holding them back. They could have run in and saved their own children if they were allowed to. Yeah. And they were just Well, very, I mean, back. very similar for us. I was... Yeah held back by police officers from going in and trying to find my best friends. One of them died on an operating table, but the other never made it off that dance floor. And sure, you know, maybe it wouldn't have been the best idea for me to charge in headfirst into a a war zone, but they weren't doing it. Yeah. And, you know, and imagine if you're the parent of a 10 year old child or an eight year old child, you would want to run in. I'm absolutely sure you would want to run in and you would do whatever you could to save the kid's life. And you can't blame a parent for wanting to do that, but you certainly can blame the police for not doing it themselves. I mean, it seems ridiculous. There were 19 officers outside. None of them felt that they needed to get into that classroom. It seems unbelievable. Also, if we're talking Second Amendment, you know, well-regulated militia, because, you know, we, we have professional police, we have a state-run National Guard, and we have a standing army that's the most powerful fighting force in the history of mankind. But there's still this discussion about sec- we need random citizens to have firearms, you know, in case anything else happens. Right. You know, we understand that we don't expect the school moms to invade Iran. We'll send the Marines and the Navy. Okay, but we need all these guns around for something that might happen in our hometown. Well, what else could that be if not there's a shooter in the school? Mm-hmm. And are we saying the point you just made, there were people that were armed and, you know, they're like, I'm going in. And speaking as the father of school-aged children, I could not live with myself if I did not go and take that risk to try and stop harm. Couple slugged in the sternum are nothing compared to what I'd be feeling after the fact. So wait a minute, do you expect a guy like me to run in armed to save my kids as part of a well-regulated militia? Are the police are the, really the only people that can make any of those mm-hmm. decisions in those situations, even if their decision is to let everybody die? What is it you want us to do with the millions of civilian firearms? Just traffic them into the Sinaloa cartel? Sell them on the black market or defend our kids with it? Uh, I'd just like a little clarification here. Well, I mean, that gets to the hypocrisy at the core of the argument, right? Which is we've been told all along that, you know, we're hoarding these guns for some mysterious or fantastical moment when they're needed. And at the end of the day, when it's time to use them, there are 
people not even being allowed to use them. And it really has been a lie perpetrated by gun manufacturers and the gun lobby to sell more guns. There's a book that I read that's actually quite fascinating um, that's called The Gunning of America. And it talks about the origins of the Second Amendment and also our obsession with easy access to firearms. It talks about how guns for most of our history were seen as practical tools that they were to hunt and keep your property safe from coyotes and bears and mountain lions and all of that sort of thing, right? And then there came a time when society was urbanizing that there wasn't actually the need for the glut of guns that were being produced. And so of gun manufacturers who were actually at one time textile manufacturers, they were t-shirt makers, uh, huh. got together and started talking about a marketing strategy mm-hmm. to sell these guns that they had produced a glut of. And part of the process was instead of these guns being seen as a practical tool, that they would be seen as something of emotional value, that they would be tied to someone's patriotism or masculinity. They started marketing guns to teenage boys, and that created the culture of gun obsession that we see today. So I encourage folks, it was a really fascinating read for me, done by a historian, I forget what her name is, but it's The Gunning of America. Um, And I think it gets at the heart of, of some of what you're talking about, which is this sort of phony obsession that we have with guns being tied to uh, patriotism or, you know, that we are somehow going to rise up as some individual militia, when in reality, it is, it's a lie that's been perpetrated by gun manufacturers so they can make more money. Exactly. Um, I want to ask before you that, go. That book, by the way, The Gunning of America, Business and the Making of American Gun Culture is uh, by Pamela Hogg. Uh, H-A-A-G, and it's available on Amazon and elsewhere. Thanks, Eric. Um, I want to ask you about the shooter himself. You know, in the immediate aftermath of the shooting, there were claims, and every single one of these claims was wrong, but there were claims in amongst the right-wing sort of crazy wingnut part of the right-wing that the shooter was trans. The shooter is not trans, but the allegation that he was, or that they were, can you explain to everyone how significant that is? Because what we've seen in the subsequent days is the spreading of this false information that has really gone from every right-wing outlet to every other right-wing outlet, through Marjorie Taylor Greene to Paul Gosar to you name it. You know, all the typical suspects have now declared to the extreme far right, or if they are, maybe just the right wing these days, declared to the GOP that the shooter was trans in a way to weaponize the shooting against gay people or, and trans people. Can you talk a little bit about the effects of that? There is a deep sickness in this country around how people are responding to marginalized communities and very specifically to transgender people. Um, I'm here in the state of Florida and I've seen it firsthand as our governor has turned the transgender community into his political punching bag in an effort to build himself the resume to run for president in 2024. And not only is it deeply disturbing, this strange obsession that the right wing has with people who are simply trying to live their lives and make it from one day to the next, but it's also incredibly dangerous. We warned about this when Governor DeSantis in his fury and rage at how the conversation around his don't say gay bill was going, unleashed his communications team online 
to say anyone who disagrees with him on that issue is a pedophile. They started calling people, quote, groomers. And that took over the zeitgeist. It was being repeated by Laura Ingram and Tucker Carlson, Sean Hannity and Ben Shapiro. And before you knew it, everybody who was LGBTQ was being slapped with this incredibly dangerous label. And what happened almost immediately after that, there was a pair of dads who were on a train with their children from Los Angeles up the coast. And they were confronted by someone who was, you know, very clearly upset by the rhetoric that he'd heard coming out of Florida, who tried to separate them from their own child, telling the child that their parents weren't really their parents, that they were rapists trying to kidnap him and trying to physically remove that child from the parents. So I say all of that because this very strange obsession that has morphed into sick and twisted rhetoric about transgender people has real life consequences. It's happening, whether it's the two dads on a train, or it's the transgender people whose lives are being stolen from us every single day. Black trans women in this country are still at far higher risk of violence and murder than any other community. Uh, We haven't addressed that crisis. And it's being made worse when you have not just these sort of 4chan channels that were once the obscure, far extreme right that people sort of ignored, but powerful people in this country with very large megaphones echoing completely bogus conspiracy theories in an effort to further their agenda tirade against transgender people. And unfortunately, I think this is what's most disturbing for me, is that for those powerful people, those politicians, it's all about politics. It's not about the mental or physical health outcomes for transgender people. It's not about any of the things they claim it's about. It is all about being famous, seeing their name trend on social media, about being on a Fox News Chiron one more time that week. Uh, and it ultimately costs trans people their safety, their mental and physical well-being, and in many cases, their lives. In some ways, you know, all the talk about thoughts and prayers, well said, by the way, is kind of crazy when you think the first reaction that they had was to try and weaponize the shooter's identity as an illegal immigrant and as a trans person and whatever else they were trying to throw at him, mental health and everything else. I mean, it seems unbelievable that that would be their first reaction would be to try and and weaponize the shooter's identity like that. It's just just stunning. Yeah, it makes sense. A- I mean, this is Darvo is the, you know, deny, accuse, mm-hmm. reverse victim and offender. Darvo, you know, who are the victims of violence more is LGBTQ communities and trans people in particular who is committing the violence institutions, for example, that whole groomer thing you're talking about coming up. They've, you know, said any discussion of gender or sexuality issues with kids at all, that's grooming behavior. When in reality, we're just starting to to tear into the child sex trafficking networks around the world. Yes, it Mm. was tarred with the whole QAnon thing. And we've had a number of people try and weaponize that discussion, but there are investigations into these crime cartels into the Scientologists where, you know, into like here in Missouri, the Agape uh, Ranch School, Camp Canacook, and uh, these institutions that traffic kids between states, between countries, and are grooming them to a life of servitude and abuse. And then that's being whipped around on somebody that wants to, you know, have the book, My Two Dads Out for somebody. Mm -hmm. And you know, that's reversing the victims and the offenders just in time. Some of the truth is starting to come out in ways I don't think people have seen. I do a lot of research into this and we are starting to appreciate the scale 
and depravity of these activities, abusing children in particular, and um, that controls through blackmail a lot of our politicians. It's the story of the century. That's coming out. And now there are these violent events. And then we we go, it must be somebody who's trans. Yes, I'm sure. Except for the fact that is not the profile of the last 30 mass murders. Yeah. Yeah. It's also interesting politically, um, that region is is a region that turned mysteriously from Democrats to Republicans to help Trump win Texas and, and uh, Republicans win Texas last time around. So it's interesting that they're, you know, they're trying to push a narrative which is sort of anti-trans and it really would appeal to a sort of more conservative Latino um, population or, or a voter population there. That's something for another day to cover. Brandon, I know you've got to go, but I want to thank you so much for taking the time to be with us tonight. Do you want to tell people where they can reach you and also a little bit about your organization and what they can do to support you? Sure. Yeah, I appreciate it. Uh, you can find me on social media. I have a whole bunch of different handles, but if you look for Brandon Wolf, I'm sure you'll find me on Instagram, on Twitter, on TikTok. I'm not very good at that, but I do my best. Uh, so find me, connect with me. I'd love to keep the conversation going. I think, you know, one of the things that I'm most passionate about right now is not getting stuck in the same sort of circular motion that we always go through. Politicians rely on it. They've come to uh, count on us not being able to find any agreement, the headlines moving on so they can coast from crisis to crisis without actually having to do their jobs. And my hope is that, you know, we can galvanize ourselves and come up with some kind of solution. I don't know what it is, but we've got to do something different for our kids. We've got to do something different for the next generation. Uh, So find me there. I am the press secretary at Equality Florida, which is the state's LGBTQ civil rights organization. So I'm very proud to not only fight and gun violence in this country, but also to ensure that all people are treated with dignity and respect, that every single young person is protected, no matter who they are, who they love, or, or how they identify. So as I mentioned, check me out on social media. Let's stay connected. I'd love to keep the conversation going. You do a great job as that spokesperson. So thank you so much, Brandon Wolf. And we'll see you again, hopefully in the future. Thanks for being on Narrative tonight. Isn't it great? Just a terrific spokesperson for not only the LGBTQ right issues, but now just listening to talk about the shooting and being a voice for the people who can't really talk right now, which is those kids that are dead. You know, they can't, they have no way of expressing themselves and other kids can't express themselves. So to have someone like uh, Brandon uh, talk about their concerns around the delay and things like that as a victim of shooting, so powerful, really, really powerful. Yeah. And I didn't realize the degree to which this sort of um, sudden feigned inability to rush in and um, exactly and deploy the skills that we pay dearly for in our country here. I didn't realize how repetitive that was. I knew there are certain events, but I didn't realize that it was three hours for a whole squad of police to deal with one guy. Yeah, I didn't realize that either. I just remember there was such a long delay until I spoke to Brandon and I said, you know, is, how long was that delay? And he was like, it's three hours. And I was like, That's, can you imagine three hours. hours, three agonizing hours in, stuck in a bathroom stalls in a nightclub with a shooter out there shooting people. And if I'm not mistaken, they actually had to open the windows to escape the bathrooms. People actually use their own uh, ways of breaking through the windows to escape those bathrooms. It's very similar. It just seems so similar. And it's the same mistake that was made in Parkland. And why are we making these mistakes? And what's the point of the police if we keep making these same mistakes? It just doesn't... You know, for folks that are law and order and are all the personal responsibility, I mean, you know, what do we keep hearing? Oh, we just forgot to turn on the body cams. Oh, we didn't file the report. Oh, you know, I don't like wearing my taser. I just wear my service revolver. So for those kind of 
events like, oops, sorry, we had to just kill the guy who's mentally ill and naked in the middle of the street or uh, apparently a pregnant woman in Missouri mm. today. And then in stuff like this, it's like, oh, you know, we, we did take training on that, but, you know, we weren't quite sure. So we just sat around and, and that's a weird, I mean, you combine that and he really, he pointed out, isn't it interesting that when certain things were were determined to be important by not sure who, but like in 2020, when there was all the post George Floyd, the supposed, you know, opposing of Antifa on the way up to getting us used to federal troops on the way to January 6th attack on the democracy, that there was military hardware. Mm -hmm. uh, it kind of reminds me of uh, in Ferguson here in uh, the fall of 2014, mm. all of a sudden this Department of Homeland Security military equipment is out with the St. Louis County Police. And uh, when, when it was a bunch of unarmed kids, they were Johnny on the spot with uh, sniper rifles, mine resistant personnel carriers. But, it you know, then you have... It's, they have these folks when a school's getting shot up, it's like, oh, you know, I, you know, you know, I don't want to stub my toe or yeah. not. The <sighs> idea that we have a symbiotic relationship between the crime and the police and the crime and the media companies that are reporting on this and the crime and the lawyers and the crime and the court system. All that ecosystem is one ecosystem that needs each other to survive. So, you know, in order for all those things to keep going and to thrive it needs the crime to keep happening. And so there's a, it's just the reality of the system. You know, that's how it's fine. It's the way it's been built, but it can create opportunities for enormous, enormous corruption and enormous, enormous um, manipulation. And that's what concerns me is that, you know, are we, you know, is the reason we're seeing such an enormous amount of gun violence in America is why are we such an outlier nation? Is it because someone has found a way to manipulate that ecosystem? And that to me is, you know, is where we really have to, to understand and investigate. And we need to do that on a national basis. It can be done on a local basis. And it's, it's critically important. I'll tell you, from some of my analysis, when you look at where some of like the worst police violence was happening in the summer of 2020 there, mm -hmm. or some of the police um, shootings of unarmed African-American men in particular, it's very interesting. And guys like Trump and other propagandists would name check this a little bit. These are all Democrat cities. Mm. Well, here's the thing. You look that up. That's not necessarily wrong. Mm. You know, St. Louis, Louisville, Minneapolis, th these places might be quite conservative out in the exurbs, but they're run, you know, the, the, the urban areas are Democrat um, run, and many of them are on the very traditional organized crime logistics routes that date back to prohibition that mm -hmm. are the routes for originally booze, but then drugs, guns. And of late, human beings. Mm -hmm. And, you know, there's so much money that flows through. Those are the places, you know, not some podunk place in Wyoming where they have schools. They could run in and do, you know, 20 people. But it's interesting. It's these places where the police might be in a position to be bribed by international cartels where some of these worst things happen. And that's where they have the most police and they're the best trained and they're the best financed. But there's plenty of, like, I'm, I'm from rural Vermont. I like to name check it. We have plenty of lunatics and tons of guns, mm -hmm. you know, I mean, real lunatics, right guys, mm. you know, and mental illness and schools and synagogues and churches. And you know, we don't have this or it's somewhat rare, but these cities that are to put a term to it really mobbed up. It's mm. interesting how, that's the pattern. You know, I can't assign causation to it yet, but 
It does feel like a pattern. It just feels like a pattern. I mean, you've got these three shootings. The same thing happened in each of these shootings. We've had 20 years. How can we not possibly know? How can we not possibly have learned our lesson? It's just, it's a pattern when you, once you factor that in. It's just, to me, is very, very troubling. And now we hear that the police, uh, the school and the police department of Uvalde won't even cooperate with the investigation, the federal investigation. I did see that tonight. Telling, I think, if you're not going to investigate, what exactly are you so afraid of? That, uh, that you know, go to the DOJ to do an independent investigation of one of the biggest tragedies in the world, uh, but certainly in America. Why can't you participate in that? What on earth is causing you not to participate? And it's interesting that there are places, and I think Brandon pointed this out, there are places that will have an event like this. Anders Breivik, uh, who mm-hmm. the, the Norwegian guy who shot up, uh, I believe, summer camp mm-hmm. on an island, I think. Yeah. You know, terrible school shooting in Scotland, one in, I think, Tasmania uh, in Australia. And after that, the nations ground to a halt and said, everybody turn your guns in. And they did, and they've never had this stuff happen again. Well, Jacinda Ardern, who's in town today, the New Zealand Prime Minister, um, you know, who's in town today, her reaction to the shootings in New Zealand was remarkable and and quick and swift. And she they banned IR-15s and a whole lot of other things. And she, in fact, was congratulating uh, President Biden on his enormous uh, track record and influence on Ukraine and a bunch of other things, which we're not hearing about. We're only hearing about what he's failing at, and which, of course, he's not. Um, it's just all been happening because it's happening. But it's tremendously great that Jacinda Ardern was in town, and it's so positive about President Biden. I hope everyone spends time listening to that press conference. But um, but Jacinda Ardern is uh, is one of those people who is able to do that because they had a different rule system. They, like Canada, have a different system of rule. The prime minister or the president has opportunities there to do things independently. But uh, not everybody has that system, and, and the United States is a much more representative system. We just have to keep fighting until these rules are changed, until the absolutely these AR-15s cannot be allowed on American streets. It seems ridiculous that a weapon of war is allowed on the streets. You know, I think Brandon brought up that book, and then I, I did not know it was T-shirt manufacturers that were uh, behind sort of the popularization of assault weaponry. That's deeply interesting, and I'd Schmata. love to know... <laughs> the schmata business turned yes. into the, the, the gun, gun business. business. Yes, it's, it wouldn't surprise me. It wouldn't surprise me. It's all the same same crowd. Oh, it's oh, all oh, the same oh, crowd. Oh, oh, he went there with, with went Jewish there. organized crime. The schmata business. The schmata business. Tex- textiles. <laughs> got I didn't a, say that, Jewish. You, I just said you know. Oh come on! <laughs> if it's in Yiddish, come on now. We can drop. Schmata. We can drop the mask good, on that one. It's a good term. Hey, uh, Eric, it's another good show. We did three segments today. We've never done that before, and we did it. We succeeded. So, uh, yay to us! And uh, on that note, thank you very much for being here tonight. We'll be back on Thursday. Narrative is made possible by viewers like you. Join today and support truly independent journalism at Patreon.com forward slash narrative. That's patreon.com forward slash narrative.